everybody, Pastor Chris here. Thanks for listening to our Market Street Podcast. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope today's message helps you in your walk with Jesus. For more ways to connect, visit us at marketstreetchurch.org. Okay. Hi. All right. Okay, here we go. We're talking about silent nights and uh, over the last few weeks, and what that means is this, is that uh, be- before... Uh, the New Testament, uh, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, there was what is deemed as what they call the intertestamental period, uh, and there was uh, about a 400-year period where there was uh, silence. Uh, in other words, what that means by what, it, what we mean by that is this: is that during that 400 years of silence, there was no written word. No written word, nothing within, uh, you know, our canon of scriptures that was, uh, you know, written or recorded and placed within um, our, our, our holy sacred scriptures. Um, and so no written word, and there was no prophetic voice, no, no prophet, no prophet, you know, rose up, spoke for God on behalf of God that God chose. Um, and so there was this long period of time, 400 years, no written word, no prophetic voice. So I want to go back to what was the last thing that God said in his written word through a prophetic voice, a prophet. And I want to look at that. And then, and then as we begin to, you know, go through these last 400 years that we've been doing, um, and then, and then sort of kind of land into where God sort of reemerges after 400 years and God has something to Say okay, so here's where um, where it's left off in the Hebrew scriptures, or what we know as the Old Testament. It, it says this, and in, in Malachi, it says, "Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord." And then it says this, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and strike the land. Uh, with complete destruction. And so here we have this, these are the, the, the last few words um, that, that God said, you know, to his people through this prophet Malachi, okay? And then we then go into this 400 period, year period of, of silence. Again, no pro- pro- prophet, no written word. And then we, we pick it up within our new New Testament, our, our New Covenant, and we, we find a, a story of a couple. Uh, they were an old couple, Zechariah, and, uh, and, and um, they were uh, about ready to have, you know, or, or wanting to have a child, but it says that they were, they were barren. They, they couldn't have uh, children, uh, but it says that they were, even in their old age, and even though they were, couldn't have children, it says that they were still dedicated. They were still devoted uh, to God. They still walked blamelessly. They walked righteously. They, they wanted to honor God in their life, and it also says uh, that, that Zechariah, he was a a priest. He was a priest. And so it was a time when he was fulfilling some of his priestly responsibilities, and uh, he was needed to report to the temple, and it was a, a, a job that he did that was, you know, that he was committed to, you know, every couple weeks, for two weeks, he was committed to this, this job of, of being a priest and performing some of the duties uh, within the temple. And so he's in the temple, and he's performing one of his priestly duties, uh, which was burning incense, which um, if you do any kind of study on that, that was a significant job to have. And it says that he got that job is because they would sort of what they called cast lots. They would cast lots, which was like a a Bible way of just saying like, you know, rock, paper, scissors, or, um, you know, who who draws the, you know, the the short straw, uh, you know, kind of a thing. And so they they cast lots. He was given this job to, to burn incense. He had to do this over a two-year period, or two-week period, excuse me. While he was doing that, an angel shows up. An angel appears, okay? And that's where we're going to pick it up. An angel appears. And it says, Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. Of course, right? Here he is doing his priestly duties in the temple, minding his own business, you know, ministering the needs of the people that they had, you know, in that time. And an angel shows up, and he's troubled by this. He saw an angel, and fear 
gripped him. That's why I always get a little skeptical when people tell me that they saw an angel, you know, and they're like, it was so beautiful. It was so amazing. I'm like, well, anytime in the Bible anybody sees angels, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Uh, they're so beautiful and glorious, and they are mistaken oftentimes for God himself, but they're not. And so fear gripped him. He was troubled by this. And then it goes on. It says, but the angel said to him. Now, this is the first time in over 400 years that God speaks or God uses an angel to speak and to give his message. Right here, the silence has now been broken. And here's what he says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Don't you love that after 400 years, then God breaks his silence, and this is what he says to you. Don't be afraid. He hears your prayer. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, their prayer was, we would love a child. We would love a child. It would be, God, we're, we're getting older. And the way that, you know, Zechariah described it, he said, I'm old and my wife is advanced in years. <laughs> That's the way it was written. Oh, you're writing this down? Oh, um, I, she's not old. She's just, you know, advanced in years. And their prayer was, every, Lord, give us a child, give us a child. And God in the, breaks the silence after 400 years to this priest and his wife. and says, he hears your prayer. He hears your prayer. And the angel says to him, excuse me, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall name him John. And this is in verse 14. But you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice over his birth. Pause. 2,000 plus years later, many are rejoicing over his birth because of what God called him to do. And then it says this in verse 16. And he, John, will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Verse 17. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You remember Malachi said that there was like an Elijah type coming 400 years later. This is what the angel says, that, the, that he, will, he will be, in him will be the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their, is this, recognize this verse at all? In Malachi, the, the last thing that Jesus, or the, excuse me, that the scripture says that, that this will happen, he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient uh, to the attitude of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Then it says that, in, in John, it says, describes them in this way. And he says, that, and he confessed and did not deny, and this is what he confessed. And so talking about when John grew up, John grew up and got older, and they started asking him, like, who are you? Like, where did you come from, and, and who are you? you your, your message is, is repentance, and, and you're encouraging people to come and to be baptized as, as, a, as a picture, a sign of, of that kind of repentance. And he, and he just said, listen, I just, first of all, I, I just want you to know, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Christ. And then they started asking him, John, this, when John grew older, he says, and they asked him, what then? What then? Are you Elijah? Like, are you Elijah reincarnated? And he said, I am not. I'm not Elijah. I'm like Elijah in the sense that I come with, with the spirit of power, you know, and, 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 and that's why I'm like Elijah in that way. He says, are you the prophet? Are you, are you Isaiah? Are you that prophet? And he answered, no, I'm not that prophet either. Then they just get round, down to it. Then they said to him, well, who are you? Tell us. 
so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And look what John answers them. Here's what he says. And he said, I am the voice of the one calling out in the wilderness. Make the way of the Lord straight, as Isaiah the prophet said. Quoting from Malachi, taken from the same words that the angel declared to his father in that temple. I'm the one calling out of the desert or out of the wilderness to make way the Lord, make this way of the Lord straight. That's who I am. And it says about John the Baptist in, in Luke, it says this, um, Luke 180, now the child grew and was becoming strong in spirit, just as the angel said. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Okay, so this is what he, he did. He lived in the desert until it was time for him to, to come and to declare and to be the forerunner of the Christ, of Jesus himself, and to, to, to say, hey, it, repent for your, your Messiah is here, your Christ is here, you're the Lamb of God that's going to come and take away the sins of the world is, is here. He's here. And he became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert as he did that. And we'll get back to that in a second. And then it says this about him. It says this in Matthew 3, 4. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. This guy was strange. This guy was in the desert for too long, and he had his, his garb and his apparel was camel's hair with a nice leather belt around it and around his waist and he his food was locusts and wild honey he was an interesting guy and i'll tell you why that is the case in a second and then it says this it says in matthew 3 3 3 for this is the one who is one referred to by isaiah the prophet when he said the voice of the one calling out in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make his paths straight now and then when the pharisees would come and he's baptizing people and they would and people would go to go to john john wouldn't even come to people people would just go to john because john was compelling john was inspiring and john was motivating and john was getting people to come back to the lord and he was baptizing them that's why he was known as john the baptizer and it says this that many would come and it says <clears throat> tells us this that um, in, in Matthew 3 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You offspring of vipers, which that's some serious trash talk right there. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Like they, John did not have a high opinion of these Pharisees and these Sadducees. Now, if you remember a few weeks back, we talked about these guys. Anybody remember this? I don't expect you to. So let's do a little bit of re recap. These guys came out of the Maccabean revolts. Remember this? Okay? And they, um, within the Maccabean revolt, were a group of people, the Hasmonean house, the Hasmonean house, which was Mattathias and his five sons. Do you remember these? Judas, the Maccabee, Maccabee means the hammer, the hammer. So that's why it was called the Maccabean revolt. But they were, they were known as the Hasmonean house. And not only did they, not, was it not just only their house and the, in the, in the people that supported them, but the other, other group of people that supported them was the Hasidims, the Hasidims. The Hasidims eventually became, if you remember this, they became Pharisees. The Pharisees, right? And out over time, you know, but the start of, the, of these group of Pharisees were they, were, they were dedicated to the law and the prophets. They were committed to the ways of God. They, they only just wanted to honor God, and they felt like the Hasmonean house was becoming a little too power hungry and a little too political. And so they, they, were, they rejected, they sort of, you know, separated themselves from the Hasmonean uh, dynasty, and, but over time, these Pharisees, and it was, as we pick it up in the Gospels and the New Testament, over time, they became 
self-righteous hypocrites. They became self-righteous hypocrites. They, they, they took it just way too far. And they took it so far as that they were adding their own rules. They were adding to the laws of God. They were adding their own rules. And they were holding people to these rules, but they weren't keeping these rules for themselves. They were putting a heavy burden on the people of God, but they didn't expect to do this themselves. And so they became... And what we don't want to become, self-righteous hypocrites. And then there was another group that broke away from them, and, and we looked at, and they were known as the Sadducees, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were um, people that wanted a little bit of religion, but also wanted a lot of the world. They wanted a little bit of religion, and they, but they wanted a lot of the world. They lived however they wanted to live, you know, you know, Monday through Saturday, but they were in church on Sunday, pretending like, I love God, I love God, I love God, but doing whatever they, and they embraced, they had a little bit of, they, they, they believed in the law, they didn't believe in a resurrection, they never, they didn't believe in a resurrection, so therefore they, they thought, well, there's no accountability, so I can live however I want to live, and so they were what we called self-centered Hellenists which is the Hellenists were, was, a, was a culture from the Greek you know, world uh, that, w- that pushed their philosophies and their beliefs. It was very you know, worldly, pleasure-driven, you know, ha- happiness, pursuit of happiness kind of thing. And they were self-centered Hellenists. They were religious, but they had a lot of the world. Now, what I didn't have time to get to that day, because that's often the case for me, is there was a third group of people in that time that we don't see them necessarily in the New Testament scriptures, but they existed, there was a large amount of them, and the reason why we know they existed was because of a man by the name of Josephus who recorded and talked about this group of people, and they were called the Essenes. The Essenes. The Essenes were what, we, what I call scribal heroes. Scribal heroes. So the Essenes saw the Pharisees and they said, I don't want anything to do with that. They're, they're like hypocrites. They're pretending like they're, they have it all together, but they're fake. They're not real. On the outside, they look nice, but on the inside, their heart is, is far from God. We don't want to have anything to do with that. And they looked at the Sadducees and said, they're way too worldly. They say they love God, but man, do they love the world. They love themselves, some pursuit of pleasure. And they think they can find it within this world. And so they said, no, we don't want anything to do with the Pharisees. We don't want anything to do with the Sadducees. And so we're going to separate ourselves. As a matter of fact, they were known as that, that and that. They were known as radical separate, separatists. Separatists. Radical separatists. They, they separated themselves. They said, listen, we're leaving and we're going out to Qumran, which is a desert. And so a group of them went out and they, they, they began to live within this communal kind of thing where they, where they pulled all of their resources together and they lived off of that. Nobody really viewed themselves as having their own stuff, but they would just pool all of their resources together and make sure that, that those Essenes, those that lived within their community had all that they needed. And they lived out in the desert. And they had sort of this mantra. They had sort of this way that they lived. And and it was called, it was referred to this. It was referred to the path. The path. The path. And what they would say is things like this. And this is all within their their writings. They they would say things. "We We need to know the path and walk the path. The path is, is, the, is the way of God, the, the Torah, and the written word of God, the Hebrew scriptures. They, they, they said, we, we need, that's the path that God has for us. And we, we're not going to be like a Pharisee. We're not going to be like a Sadducee. We're going to be separate from everybody else. And we're going to be radical and fanatical about being honorable to Yahweh. 
and that's how they lived. They were so radical when it came to making sure that their lives were an honor to God and that they stayed on the path and they walked on the path, that they knew the path and they walked the path, that they would literally only drink water or use water that they deemed as living water, living water. What that means is this, and here's a picture of it, okay? This is a Qumran waterway that system that they built um, so that they can make sure that they had what they, what they redeemed as living water. Living water is this. Living water, it was either, that was water that they saw that only came from God. Only came from God. It was either came from the earth, was a spring, or the second one was rain. It was either had, the, the only water that they would use, and they would use it for drinking, but also for purification, which we'll get to in a second, they would only have that. And so, they're, remember, they're in a desert. They're in a desert. But this is how committed, and if you, I don't know about you, but I've been in a desert before, and it can get pretty hot. 110, Qumran can get up to 115, 120 degrees. But they were dedicated and they said, we're only using water, living water. If it, if it doesn't come up from a spring or if it doesn't come from the sky, we're not going to use it. And so they had to build these sort of waterways to make sure that when it did rain, that rain that came would flood and come down into their community, and that's what they were used. But that's how fanatical, that's how radical they were to making sure that they know the path and they walk the path. They know the path and they walk the path. Now, they also, they also had a keystone scripture that they lived by. They had a, they had a, a, a scripture text, they had a couple of them, but they had one particular that this is where they sort of drew their purpose from, okay? And here's what it is. It's found in Isaiah 40. We'll pick it up in verse 3. This is sort of, this is what they believe was their purpose. Like if they had a mission statement, this is it. The voice of the one calling out, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Is this sounding familiar? The verse 4. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the uneven ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then it says this, verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then they go on to say this. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? And here's what it says. All flesh is grass, and all of, all of its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. And then it says in verse 7, the grass withers and the flowers fades. When the breath of the Lord has blown, blows upon it, the people are indeed grass. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, here's what most likely was the case when it came to the Essenes. John the Baptist and his family were most likely descendants of the Essenes. That when John was born, here's what, here's what probably happened. We're not for sure and if you do a Google search on these kind of things, you're going to hear a lot of different debate when it comes to the, these group of people. But when John was born, what most likely happened was is that John's father, Zechariah, took him to Qumran to be raised and to live of the ways of the Essenes. And he most likely grew up and learned about their ways and made sure that his life was as dedicated to Yahweh as theirs was. That we are going to know the path of God and we are going to walk on the path 
of God. And they saw John as their, their guy who was going to come out of their people to pave the way. They also didn't recognize John as the Messiah, but they did recognize John as the forerunner to Jesus. And John came from the desert until it was time for his public appearance. And what most likely happened was John was with those group of people called the Essenes who were radical about making sure that they stayed true to the path of God. Here's another thing that they were radical about. They were radical about the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we know as to be our Old Testament. And that what they would do is that they would gather around a table, okay? And they would have a, it would be a four-person process, a four-person process. And they would come around this table... And they would begin to take the Hebrew scriptures and they would begin to make copies of it. Copies of it. And they did this as if, as if this was their job, as if this was their calling. And they would over and over make copies. And it would be a four-person process. And what they would do is they would come around. There would be four guys around the table. And let's say that they would start with Genesis, the beginning of Genesis. So it says, in the beginning. And so there would be one guy who would say, he would say, read it. And he would say, out loud, in. And then the guy next to him would go look at it and say, yep, it's in. And then the third guy would write down in, and then the fourth guy would look to make sure that the third guy wrote down in. And then they would go, the, and then the guy behind, next to him would go, yep, it's the. And then the third guy would write down the, and then the fourth guy would look at it and make sure that it was the. And then they would go to beginning, and they would go through that same process. And then... They would get to God. So it would say, in the beginning, God. And before they would write down God, they would go to their baptisms and they would purify themselves clean, ceremonial clean. And then they would go back to the table and they would write down God. And then the guy next to him would go, yep, it's God. And the third guy would write down God. And the fourth guy would go, yep, that says God. What a job, huh? Why? Here's why they knew. The grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's fast forward to 1947. We went a long ways. In 1947, there was a goat herders that lost one of their goats and they were trying to and in in that around Qumran or in Qumran near the Dead Sea by the way and while this person they were trying to find their lost goat they thought that maybe the lost goat went into one of the caves in Qumran and so they started throwing rocks in the caves they were probably too scared to go in the caves I would be too so they're throwing rocks in the caves to try to see if they can maybe hear their goat, you know, trapped in there, and they, then they can go in and they can get their goat. Well, when they threw a rock in the cave in Qumran, they heard a jar break, and that piqued their interest. And so they went in, this is 1947, they went in, and they found jars. And in these jars were these scrolls. And they pull a scroll out. And at the time, this kid named Muhammad, by the way, who found this scroll in this broken jar, turned it in, and they discovered, over time, they discovered that it wasn't just one scroll. As a matter of fact, it was a thousand plus scrolls of our old Testament scripture. And at that time that they discovered these scrolls, they said this is the greatest discovery in modern day history. 
that in those caves in Qumran, thousands of years before that, there was a group of Essenes meticulously writing down the words of God and placing them in those jars. And they said that they found, now prior to this, prior to this, am I nerding out on you a little bit too much right now? Okay. Prior to this, prior to this, the oldest prior to, so to the late 1940s, 1950s, prior to this, the, only, the oldest written manuscript that we had of the Old Testament was dated at A.D. 900. It was the massive, um, never mind, something text, okay? It was dated at A.D. 900. That was the oldest written uh, text that we had of our Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. They turned it in to antiquities uh, scholars, Bible scholars. They report back, this is the greatest discovery in modern day history. Here's what they discovered. That these scrolls that they found near the Dead Sea, now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, were dated from 150 B.C. to A.D. 65. And the reason why they stopped at A.D. 65 is because around A.D. 65, there was another group that rose up in Jerusalem called the Zealots, who decided that they were going to try to take back their land from the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire says, I don't think so. And they crushed, and they destroyed Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple, and they went, and they went to Qumran, the Roman government, the Roman Empire. They went to Qumran, and they killed all of the Essenes. But the work was already finished. And here's an image of the, one of the caves, one of the famous caves that they found. There was over 20 caves that they discovered these Dead Sea, what they call the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was 1,000 plus. The entire, the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament. So they take, so they take what they found was the oldest written, they, they dated at 150 B.C., so they, so they take the oldest writings of the Old Testament, specifically they took Isaiah, <clears throat> the book of prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53 specifically, and they match it up with another writing of the earliest writings that they had of Isaiah 53, uh, dated at somewhere around A.D. 900, or it was like A.D. 916. So there was a thousand-year period now that they discovered and so they started to look at, okay, what changed? What changed? So what we had was AD 900, a, a manuscript of Isaiah. Now we have 150 BC of a manuscript of Isaiah, which is a thousand-year gap. Now, you, have you ever play, played the game telephone? Remember this as a kid? They played one big game of telephone, and they wanted to see what changed. Here's what changed. 17 letters and spelling, and only four conjunctions. Within a thousand-year gap, the only change was 17 different kinds of letters or spellings, and, and oftentimes they would just add a letter. So if it was John, it would be J-O-H-N, and then they would sometimes just add an N. That's it. And four conjunctions. It was a 99% accuracy rating for a thousand-year gap between 8,900 and 150 B.C. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So, can I read to you Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 didn't change in a thousand years. Here's what it says. Here's what it says. A hundred and 150 B.C., that means 150 years before the birth of Christ. Are you ready? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot 
And like a root out of parched ground, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and he did not esteem, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us are like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb. He was like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who, con- who, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he has done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. A thousand years, not a word of that changed. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked this earth, this was said of him to look for. What I just read, there was at least eight fulfilled prophecies of Jesus. So just for fun, the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies in Isaiah, what were the odds? What were the odds? Here were the odds. One in 100 trillion. One in 100 trillion. Some group of nerds at MIT came together. I'm a nerd too, it's okay. They got together and they said, here's what that's like. Here's what that's like. The odds of Jesus only, only fulfilling eight prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures that pointed exactly to Jesus. By the way, he fulfilled over 300. But they said, let's just say it's just eight. Let's just say it's just eight. Here are the odds, one in 100 trillion. It would be like, they, they said, it would be like if you, had a, if you found a marked silver dollar if you found a marked silver dollar in an area the size of Texas, two feet deep, and you were blind. (laughs) Those are the odds. Jesus, in just what I read, fulfilled eight. Those are the odds. Good luck with that silver dollar. Let's say, are we having fun yet? Okay, good. Let's say he fulfilled 48 prophecies. He fulfilled 300 and some. What are the odds? The odds are... 10, 1 and 10 to the power of 157. Those are the odds. The nerds at MIT said it this way. They said, it would be like discovering or finding an atom 
out of all the atoms in the known galaxies. Those are your odds. So keep playing the lottery, everybody. Because you have a better chance. Just kidding. Listen. I, can, I, can I tell you with the New Testament? Like, just give me a couple more minutes. Okay, here's... Let me just tell you about our New Testament. That was our Old Testament and how, how viable it is and how it can be trusted and how you can hold on to that truth that it is God's word and it is inspired by God and it took a group of Essenes to make sure that you and I have it and it's accurate. What about our New Testament? Well, let's just think, let's just admit, what do we know about Greco-Roman history culture? So basically what I shared with you over the last few weeks, right? We talked about a lot of different characters. We talked about, you know, Antiochus IV. We talked about, you know, uh, Alexander the Great. We talked about Aristotle. We talked about all these. So here's what we have for writings for those within that we know, that we know existed within Greek culture and Roman Empire, okay? Here's are some of the writings that we have. We have writings from Plato, which are seven manuscripts, written somewhere around 400 B.C., and the earliest copy is 900 A.D. Aristotle, we have 49 manuscripts written in 350 BC and the earliest copy we have of Aristotle is AD 1250. Julius Caesar, we have 10 manuscripts 100 BC when it was written, 900 AD when is the earliest copy we have of his writings. Tacitus, uh, Thucydides, uh, Herodotus, all of these writings, okay? So this is what we know of, of all, everything that we know about Roman culture, Greek culture. Now, you learn this stuff in school as if it actually happened, right? That these people actually existed. Guys like Plato, Aristotle, Caesar, all of these people that we learn about in history. Their manuscripts together, their manuscripts together, total 173. If you add up all what we, what we know, what we know about Greek he, you know, all, uh, Roman, what we know, uh, totals 173. Over in the earliest, the earliest that we have is 350 years span between the earliest manuscript and its copy. What about the New Testament? Here's what the New. Te- here's what we have: the New Testament manuscripts in just Greek writings. We have over 5,000 manuscripts of Greek written New Testament. That's just Greek. Then we have over 10,000 written in Latin, and we have another 20,000 written in other languages. The writings of the New Testament, they say, were written between A.D. 45 and A.D. 96. We now have the, we've now discovered back in 1934, the earliest copy of our New Testament. And the earliest copy that was verified of our New Testament is a little uh, a paper, a little about credit card size, of the Gospel of John. And it was dated, it was dated, AD 90. AD 90. Now we have from what it was written to the earliest writings of our New Testament manuscripts, we now have a 30 to 80 years gap of when our writings were. And the other writings that we have, Julius Caesar, Plato, Aristotle, all the Greek cultures, everything we know about Roman Empire, it was 350 years. We have within our New Testament, we have... It's conservatively 80-year gap. That's it. 80-year gap. Less than a 100-year gap. Let me show you the image of, of the earliest piece of manuscript that we have of our New Testament. It's, it's John, this is, this is uh, can you read it? Let's read it together, everybody. Okay. So it's, it's John, this is, this is what they discovered. This is what they call P52, papyri, papyri 52. This is the earliest written manuscript that we have of our New Testament, A.D. 125. 
By the way, John, John's Gospels, John's writings were written in AD 90. AD 90. You know what it says on here? Look what it says. This is John 18. Here's what it's written. Here's what it's written. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Next thing it says on P52. This happened so that the word of Jesus, which he said, indicating what kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I must be pierced. Isaiah 53. I must be pierced for their iniquities. I must be wounded for their transgressions. The punishment of them all must be on them because by my wounds, the world will be healed. And then it says on the back side of that little credit card size, it says this. Therefore, Pilate entered the praetorium again and summoned Jesus and said to him, You are the king of the Jews? Jesus responds. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So, you are a king? Jesus answered, That's right. You say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. How cool is that? Why did God prepare? And why did God preserve? Why did he preserve? Here's why, for you and for me. Not to know the books of the Bible, but to know the author of it. He doesn't want you to just know this book. He does, but he wants you to read this book and to know this book and he preserved this book so that you can not just know the books of the, of the Bible, what, is, what we hold in our hands, but to know the author of it. Why? So that you can, you can know. You can know the path. Is to know the path and to walk the path. To know the path. Just like the Essenes. They said, listen, we want to know the path and we want to walk in the path and we're going to make sure that the word of God, because we're, gonna, we're like grass and we're going to wither. We're like flowers that we're going to fade away. But God's word will stand forever. And we're going to make sure that before this Roman Empire comes and wipes us all out, we're going to make sure that we do our part and, know, and people can know God's word. And that's exactly what they did. Why? Because they want people to know the path. And they want people to walk the path. And Jesus would say it to us this way. He says, I just want you to know the truth and I want you to listen to my voice. I want you to know the truth, and I want you to listen to my voice. Know the truth, and I want you to listen to my voice. Listen, this can be trusted in your life. This can be trusted in your life. And God has moved heaven and earth. God has put certain people in place. And God has orchestrated a plan so that you can know that on that day, on that day, when an angel appeared, he said, hey, you should go to Bethlehem because in Bethlehem, there's good news of great joy for you and for all people. You can know that on planet Earth, you can have peace because there's a Savior born for you. And he's Christ the Lord. He's Christ. And you should know that truth. And you should walk in that truth. And you should listen to his voice. Because this can be trusted. This can be trusted. So know this path. And walk this path. Know this truth. And walk this truth. 
because no one has changed the course of history like Jesus. Stay on his path. Listen to his voice. It's trusted. It's trusted. Let's pray. Father, you went way out of the way for us to orchestrate and to put things into place. Because within the fullness of time, you sent your son. He was born under the law. He was born of a woman so that we can be redeemed from the law, from our sins, and so that we can receive your adoption. And God, you're wanting those that are maybe here watching, wherever they're watching, whenever they're listening, those that maybe don't know you personally, to know that, first of all, that your word will endure forever. Your word will be tested and tried and still remain true and will continue on forever. And in your word is truth, truth for us to know, truth for us to walk in, and to know that you came, you sent your son so that your son can be a king, a king of our hearts. And we give him all the glory and all the honor that is due to his wonderful name. And we can be your heir and co-heirs with King Jesus as adopted into your family. We thank you for preserving your word. We thank you for the evidence that it provides for us to know that this word is truth. And it can be trusted with every single aspect of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.